In this episode, we speak with Donna Atanasio. She's the Senior Advisor for Energy Law Programs at George Washington University. Donna works with both private and public entities to help push grid infrastructure legislation and new standards. We discuss everything from jurisdictional issues of utilities and government to the impact and potential of microgrid technologies. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, I, I just want to uh, share what really I think is so interesting about your background is you've been able to work in quite a few different areas that are not just relevant to electric vehicles, but especially your work uh, specifically with where all this energy is coming from to power, whether it's electric vehicles, um, clean transportation in the form of light transit, it all kind of comes from the grid. And obviously that is the grid and grid connection. So I'm, I'm really excited to be working and talking with you today about how all these kind of systems work together between the regulatory side of it and kind of breaking down what that kind of looks like and how you will see that as kind of the average person. Uh, because a lot of people don't always understand the difference between those guidelines. And then really start getting into what you're passionate about, uh, microgrids, and how that kind of goes across all these different uh, entities, whether that is the federal, the, the local utilities, and more. So with that, I'll, I'll just uh, let you give a quick overview of your background and what you're doing at George Washington. Sure. Um, well, I've been in this industry for, hate to say, about 40 years now, pretty close. Um, I spent about 24 of those in private practice. Um, I represented utilities, power marketers, people who are trying to disrupt the industry, people who are carrying it forward. I really wanted to see I think we're at a point of transition. I really wanted to be able to go to GW and really think about what that transition looks like and how it should be shaped and changed. And no better way to do that than to be working with students who will be the people leading us there um, in the next generation. Um, so maybe just to launch in, as you point out, this is a system. Uh, when I first came to GW, they said, oh, wouldn't you teach a course on renewables? I said, no, because renewables are part of the system. Electric vehicles are part of the system. We really need to look holistically at how it works. Um, as you point out, we have both a federal side to this and a state side to this. Traditionally, utilities were regulated by states. And it wasn't until we began to find conflicts between states that the federal government stepped in and formed what is now the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. So the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has a very limited jurisdiction to some degree in the sense that they only regulate wholesale sales, that is when I'm selling power to someone else who will then resell it, or um, transmission all in interstate commerce. Now that we have large markets that cover large areas, in fact, their jurisdiction is fairly broad, but it's really states that are at the heart of this. And so when we start thinking about some of these transitions that we're having these days, such as electric vehicles, so much of it is in the hands of state regulators. And so I really think it's important that we do think a lot about what is happening at the different states. And we have different jurisdictions. Every state is different. Even within states, municipalities may have their own separate ability to operate without regulatory oversight from the state. So it's a very complex system with a lot of different players who are regulating it, who are participating in it. And of course, the consumers, the most important people, the ones who are using it and paying it, we're the reasons that the whole system exists. And, and that's, that I think is a great way to kind of sum it all together. And, of course, between all of that, then we kind of get to talk about the utilities and how while they have to follow certain states, they also may be in multiple states. And that starts kind of getting into all sorts of fun, uh, maybe fun's a strong word, but interesting challenges that you have across when trying to figure out these different uh, agendas and regulatory goals for what's trying to go on. I'm not sure if the dogs in the background are coming through or not, but um, yeah. <laughs> okay, no worries. Well, that's the perks of getting to watch a friend's dogs today. But uh, anyway, focusing on why we're talking today, can, we, can you also kind of uh, share with, not only we have those different um, parts of the system, there's also, I think sometimes what people can be a little confused by, especially when you start looking at the residential side for like solar, for example, or even uh, when they need to build an EV charger, there's the concept of like retail, re, uh, resale and wholesale power. 
Can you give uh, also kind of a brief overview of how those differentiate? So that's a really interesting area because it really is all about definitions. Wholesale, as I mentioned, is a sale for resale. So for example, if I am selling power to the utility who will sell it to someone else, at some level that's a re that, that could be deemed a wholesale sale. But we also do have this difference in jurisdiction, which isn't strictly just retail and wholesale. Retail, of course, when I purchase power for my own use, that's gonna be a retail purchase, or if I were the utility and selling it to someone for their own use, that would be a retail sale. But so for example, when we have solar that's being generated off my rooftop and being provided to my utility, is that an interstate commerce? It's on the distribution system. It's clearly local. It's not going anywhere. It's staying in the system. And so we begin as we have moved towards this period of time in which we have so many people that are participating at the distribution level in the bigger grid, the commerce of electricity, these lines are beginning to get a little bit sticky and a little bit hazy. Now, to date, the um, generation of solar small scale off of my rooftop, for example, is not considered a wholesale sale that's under FERC's jurisdiction. It's looked upon really as a retail adjustment to my bill um, and one that is within the state purview. But if, for example, I were simply in the business of you know, having a power plant in the business of selling electricity for the purposes of resale, then it might be deemed for jurisdictional. So it's a very fuzzy line, and it's one that we're really struggling with. The Supreme Court had to issue several decisions about this in recent years, and it's still not entirely clear. They've always made it very clear. They were dealing with the facts in front of them. Um, so I think we're going to still see more of that happening in future years as we try to sort out where that line is. Are you starting to see... Oh, I'm sorry. I, I just, may, I, may I go on and, and just say, you know, this is actually a great place for, to talk about electric vehicles. Yeah. Um, I would stop because, you there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, when you think about it, you're putting power, someone is, has a charging station, let's say it's a public charging station, you know, owned by one of the companies that put these out, for example, on the highways, and you're using that to charge your car. Well, what is that? Did that person buy electricity to resell to you? Is that a wholesale sale? Is the transaction where it goes from the charger to my car a retail sale? This is another perfect example of why this line is so sticky. And in fact, what a number of states have done, um, Kentucky, Iowa, California, I, I think others are getting on the bandwagon too, is they're redefining it. They're saying that that's a service. It's, it's not something that makes the seller a utility. It's not in the realm of a retail sale that would be regulated by the state. And you know that really begins getting us into the theory of why do we regulate? We're there to protect the consumer. Well, I can't move my house, but I can move my car. I can go down the street and find somebody else to sell me electricity. So we're still, again, trying to sort out that line. But at this point in time, I think people are trying to take that out of the realm of even being a sale of electricity. Yeah, and that, uh, not, not to go down a different tangent, but that is kind of interesting, especially when you mentioned the state of California. I believe there's a few other states, but when it comes to the actual um, legislation of how to charge and how to rate what that's going at, they're, they're kind of just passed a bill recently where you are charged by time versus like amount of energy. And that's had all sorts of, I, I think it was well-intentioned regulation, but it's getting a lot of pushback because I think it's made what for some people might be a little bit of a confusing process with having to figure out how fast their car can charge and all these other things compared to traditional fuels uh, that are charged by the gallon by a known quantity has been adding another uh, fun interest. Uh, <laughs> once again, using fun, I'm not sure if that is the right word, but interesting twist for sure in how this is kind of unfolding. And, what, what I wanted to ask you about that is you mentioned going to the Supreme Court and uh, all these other um, new laws and regulations that are coming up. I mean, would you say overall there's just been a huge momentum in these kinds of conversations around who owns energy and where that is kind of who that falls to? Have you been seeing momentum around that recently compared to especially when you first started teaching or has this always been a consideration? 
Um, I'd say that we, in the time that I've been practicing and then teaching, I'd say we had a huge transition in the 80s, 90s, where generators began competing with utilities and we began seeing the wholesale markets opening up to competition. That led to a waterfall of events, open access transmission, the ability to be able to transmit your power across any utility system if they were subject to the Federal Energy, Federal Energy Regulatory Commission um, on the same terms and conditions as, other, as anyone else. Um, it led to the idea of retail competition. In many states, you can choose. I can here in Washington, D.C., I can choose who I have as my supplier of electricity. It still gets delivered by my local utility company, but the person who's supplying it to me is my choice. So we saw that whole transition in the 80s, 90s, into the early 2000s. A lot of that was being driven by economics. Um, the idea that you know, we could bring more competition to discipline the market. I think what we're seeing now is a technological transition, one, one that's being driven by all these new technologies. Um, some not so much new, but more cost effective, whether it's solar, whether it's battery storage, electric vehicles, um, wind, uh, the idea of new technologies that might at some point harness tides um, or waves. And in order to be able to accomplish these, we wrote our laws in a certain context. The Federal Energy Power Act was written in 1935. Now it's been amended since, but the fundamental structure is still there. So it was built for a technology that is changing. So are we seeing more? I'd say we've been seeing change really throughout my entire career. That's one of the things that makes this such an interesting area of the law. But I think what we're seeing now is that we have more participants in the market, different kinds of participants. You know, I'm in the market because my solar panels put power out onto the grid, but I'm not in it for profit. Um, and we're also then seeing, um, so it's the participants and the technology that are causing all these new questions to arise. So yes, I'd say we are seeing a lot of change and I think they're a little bit different than what we've seen in the past. It's interesting you mentioned that though, because it sounds like the trend and maybe the momentum has always been the same. It's always about what is the best cost and kind of the economics around it. The variable has really been around the technology and maybe in the 90s to 2000s, it's probably more about renewables and then really within this last decade, more serious conversations around electric vehicles. Would you say that's kind of accurate? Yeah, I mean, I think it's changing. This is you know, one of the new, new right. things. You're on one of the cutting edges. Oh, actually, and I say that it is now cost effective. Actually, I can find you ads back in the 19, 1912, 1920s for electric vehicles. Um, it right. was a thing, it was a thing. <laughs> I, I think it's, uh, <laughs> Porsche, they were, when they first started, they offered both uh, electric vehicles and internal combustion engine. Unfortunately, they went another route, but they've kind of come back around and it's now an option for consumers. Well, I mean, the internal combustion engine had some market advantages. Um, it was, you know, you could chart, you know, fill it up easily. Um, it was cost effective. Now we're sort of swinging the other ways. It looks like there's a lot of uh, cost efficiencies to electric vehicles. Um, we're still have to overcome a lot of obstacles. I think there's a lot of issues that have to be managed before we can successfully move to um, electric vehicles. And another thing that I'd like to throw into the conversation, if I may, is this I'm not going to stop you. Go for it. <laughs> um, equity. Do. Energy mm -hmm. equity. You know, you mentioned that, you know, the electric industry has always been about affordability and reliability, th those types of big ideas. We can't lose that as we move towards this technology enabled society. We can't just have electric vehicles available for the rich and expect everyone else to just figure something else out. Um, so we do have to think about equity issues as we move forward and how we manage to keep all these wonderful technological advantages available to everyone and 
continue to make energy affordable. Yeah, I've, that, I, I think that's a great point. Um, that is kind of the unfortunate thing is there's the majority of electric vehicles are brand new and brand new cars are expensive. It's really trying to figure out how to incentivize. And you're starting to see cars now on the used market that really does open up a much larger audience of people or even people who are, I would say even financially okay, they just feel more comfortable buying a used vehicle that's more of a known entity. Uh, so, I mean, have, have you done any work? There's definitely been uh, proposals around regulations, like how there's incentives for new car buyers. Is there anything that you think might be interesting for uh, essentially ways to help electric vehicles become more affordable or more obtainable to a wider market? Well, I think the fundamental thing that has to be addressed is the infrastructure issue. Um, I don't own an electric vehicle. I live in Washington, D.C., in the city, right smack in the city. Last time I bought a car, I was living in a condo building where my parking, I actually had a spot that was reserved for me, but it was some distance from my house, and there was no way that you could plug in a car out in this alley. Um, where I live now, I have a public parking in front of my house. I can usually park pretty close to my house, but it's not reserved to me. And I don't have a way to really put power out there. Now my neighbor actually moved in, they moved in recently and they already had an electric car. So to charge their car, they run the cord out of their house, down the front steps, across the sidewalk and plug in their car. And luckily they're usually able to park close enough that their cord reaches. Now they're very careful. They you know, cover the uh, wire and market and all that. But can you imagine living in a city where you have every few, every house you have a cord or two running out the door and across the sidewalk? That's not gonna work. Um, so I think one of the things we have to deal with, and this impacts not exclusively, but to a large extent, a number of lower income people, is accessibility for public charging. If you don't have a garage where you can charge your car every night, sort of level one charging, just you know, being able to plug it into your regular type of outlet, or you don't have the capability to put in your own level two charger or have, for example, an employer that has a level two charger, what are you going to do? You're going to be relying on a fast charger. Right now, at least where I live, there's a lot of them out on the highways. I can drive out to I-95 out in Maryland and find plenty of them. There's not a lot of them hanging around the city. And so how am I going to own a vehicle if I'm a lower income pe person, even if I can fa find the you know, secondhand vehicle that I can afford, where am I going to charge it? So I think we've really got to deal with that issue before we're going to be able to see the market penetration go beyond a certain level. And that, that is a great point. Uh, I, I, think, I think you kind of nailed on the head where even people who have been able to afford brand new Teslas or you name it, more expensive cars, that is still the issue. Uh, and it is unto itself very cost prohibitive to get that figured out. Yeah. I think there, there are, I have heard pushback from some people that there's kind of the argument that it's not ideal, but it's no different than a current gas car. You don't have a gas station you plug it into at night. Would you say there's a difference there or is that still kind of a, not the most practical analogy? Well, no. I mean, I think if we get to the point where you have gas stations that you can go to and charge up quickly, that will be great. But we're not there yet. Yeah. And the fast chargers draw an enormous amount of power off the grid. So you're going to have to have an infrastructure. I, you know, There's a lot of debates about whether utilities ought to be providing charging services or whether it should be private companies. But at the heart of it, somebody's going to have to put the power into the charger. And in most cases, it's going to come from a utility. I mean, I suppose you can set up your own microgrid, have your own generation that's going to, you know, power your chargers, which will then power the, the electric vehicles. But for the most part, it's going to come from the utilities. And they've got to have the infrastructure, not just the generating plants, but the wires, the capability to bring large amounts of power to specific places where these charging stations will be erected and those charging stations have to be throughout the city. So we're really talking about a whole new network. Um, you know, you think about right now, we have a network that delivers fuel to all these gas stations where you then can go with your car and pump it. Well, we need that network of electricity to be able to support this industry. The frequency and kind of the stability to know that when you go 
to the charge, it'll be up and running and there's plenty of them around you. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a great point and completely agree. I think a lot of the challenges for going from city to city have been solved, but as far as still driving around town or it's not, it's just the fact of the matter is it's just not as uh, easy or as accessible to really get to the chargers you need and when you need them. Yeah. Um, you mentioned microgrids, and I know that for you is a very special area and something you're really interested in. Can you share a little bit about uh, why you're so passionate about it and what you've been doing currently? Sure. So first of all, why don't I start with what a microgrid is? Um, a microgrid is really just a small, distri small distribution system. So you have to have both generation, your customer, what we call load, that is the usage of energy, um, you have to have boundaries around it. It can be isolated. It can operate all on its own. It could be connected to the grid, although universally the biggest use for microgrids is to electrify areas that don't have electricity. So for example, in the US, most microgrids are in Alaska, remote villages, they have nothing else. So you have generation, you have people that need the power, you have boundaries because there's nothing to connect to, um, and you have to be able to control it. What's happening in microgrids is that the, again, the technology has gotten cheaper. So the ability to have microgrid controllers, ones that can handle the sophistication of keeping the balance between the amount of power that's being consumed and the amount that's being generated and or stored, because you could use storage as a way to balance all this. So that's really improved. That's what's driving the feasibility of microgrids. They've been around forever, but again, they're becoming more versatile and more useful. Um, there, I think there have been two real drivers of this. One is that after Superstorm Sandy, which hit the East Coast, there was a lot of interest in places such as Princeton University, NYU, other universities that had microgrids and were able to maintain power throughout the power outages. There's a sort of sense of envy. Oh, this is a great thing to have. If there's a power outage, then we will be able to you know, get through the next one, we'll have power for our first responders, we'll have power for cell phones, we'll have power to pump gas, uh, which turned out to be a problem in, in Superstorm Sandy. So I think that drove a lot of the interest. The reality that I think a lot of places are finding is that if you're only thinking about a microgrid as a backup system, it's very expensive. But there's another side to this, which is also really interesting. The Department of Energy in particular has really been leading um, an effort in part through the Pacific Northwest National Labs to really think about grid architecture. What do we need for a secure, reliable grid in the future? And one way you might be able to achieve that is with a network of microgrids. If you have different parts of the system that you can actually isolate, that you know, if one part is being, say, under a cyber attack, that you can isolate it, cut it off. Um, if another piece um, or you know, an area has gone down, but you can bring a piece up, well, that would be really wonderful. You could control things better. You could share resources between them when it was feasible to do it and separate them when you didn't. You'd have, you could use all this distributed generation that we have now more effectively because you can balance it in these small little nodes. So, so uh, just, just to clarify, you would see this as kind of an augmentation of the existing grid where there's kind of maybe better data and better ability to kind of pinpoint, but at the same time, it's not like you have to tear everything up and start over. It's kind of augmenting and finding the areas that are the most crucial to improve and going yes. from there. Okay, great. Yeah, we, we can see that happening. I mean, there's already several utilities that have sort of done this to portions of their grid or, or at this point, they're mostly pilot projects, but I think we're seeing more of the ability to do that. So I think that's where its real future is is when we find those day-to-day -day uses and we find that it can be useful on a day-to-day -day basis, then we can create it and then we also get the benefit of being able to isolate certain areas during storms, for example. Yeah, I mean, that, that's huge. I, I think, uh, I mean, being here on the West Coast, we've been impacted very heavily re recently with the forest fires and just all of that and being able to kind of mitigate some of those issues. And I think it's only going to get worse with kind of the rolling blackout procedures that a lot of these utilities are proposing. So I think that'd be huge. Yeah, there's actually, um, there's a tribal um, entity in North, I think in Humboldt County in California, Blue Lake Ranch area, which put, out, put together a microgrid 
um, because they are essentially at the end of the line. They're, they're impacted by forest fires. If power gets cut to their line, they have nothing. So with the help of several other entities, they've um, put together a microgrid and they're now the regional emergency center. So at times when power is cut off to them, they're actually able to support the region. People can come get healthcare, um, have you know places to stay warm, charge phones, whatever is needed. Um, so I think they're a great example of exactly what you're saying where this can provide some resiliency and some flexibility that a central system can't. Gotcha. And, and with this kind of resiliency, do you see this being, I mean, th that's where you start kind of getting into some interesting, uh, I don't know, <laughs> they're kind of challenging because even, if, so if you're able to turn off part of the grid, how do you make sure that this microgrid or this kind of energy island now has the resources to have, whether that's backup through batteries or a local renewable plant? How do, how do you see that kind of being figured into where certain, uh, microgrids make the most sense and really how to make the grid as uh, dynamic as possible? Well, I think that's really where we're struggling right now is to try to figure out what these look like. Are they privately owned? I think, you know, for many years, entities, private entities have had these for their own property. You know, one customer all behind their meter. Um, and that's kind of easy to understand what it is and how to basically not regulate it. It's again, it's just you know, I, the university or whomever has decided to create my own microgrid. And so it's really just a question of interconnecting with the utility and then perhaps arranging to maybe sell some excess power or buy backup power. And in those cases, you know, that entity itself will be responsible for determining how much generation it wants in the event it is islanded, what are going to be the critical loads that it will serve first if it can't serve everything, or should it install more generation so it can serve everything. Those would be private decisions. As we see utilities doing this, then there's the question of, well, what is the generation that's going to be part of that microgrid? So for example, there's a project out in Illinois, the Bronzeville project. Um, it is a utility project, Commonwealth Edison, and they're contracting with um, people that have generation or will bring generation into the system to serve a microgrid that they're developing. It's actually going to be situated right next to the Illinois Institute of Technology, which already has a microgrid. And one of the reasons for this project is to start studying how microgrids work together. And this is still a very new area. There's a lot of stuff we don't know. Going down the road, your question about, you know, well, who will get served? What if there's not enough generation? We still really need to work those things out. And totally understands. I, I think that's an interesting area because right now there's a lot of talk about batteries. And I think one of the other kind of uh, big conversations lately, especially how it involves batteries and vehicles is the whole vehicle to grid side of this stuff. Um, have you worked around that or kind of looked into that as maybe a addressable answer? Or is it really just too soon with there not being enough uh, vehicles out there? It's interesting. Um, I had a, a couple of students working on this from a international perspective, looking at it both for the European Union and for the US um, over the past year. Uh, so I can't say it's a work area where I've done a lot of work myself. Um, I think there's a lot of thought in the EU about using it for grid balancing. In the US, on one hand, I hear a lot of, well, we can't even think about that, until, mostly from utilities. We can't even think about that until we have more market penetration. Whether we'll get to the point where you have the infrastructure in place, that you can have this two-way flow of, communicate, of um, electricity to and from the car and the grid, there's still a lot of hurdles that have to be overcome. I mean, first of all, it has an impact on the, how fast the battery degrades. Who takes that hit? Um, if I decide I'm going to sell power to the grid, is it going to be valuable enough that I'm willing to take that? Um, as I understand it, with very few exceptions, most electric vehicles right now couldn't even do this. That is, they're not equipped to trans. To they're equipped to take Transfer power in, energy. not to yeah. give it back. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we have that hurdle to overcome. And then you've got to be able to manage all these data points. Um, you've got power, as I said, the grid always has to be in balance. The amount of power being used, the amount that's being generated has to be kept 
imbalance. So on one hand, you can look at these cars, oh, this is wonderful because they can store energy. We can charge them when we have too much generation. We can discharge them when we need more. They're just, you know, this wonderful source that, you know, most of the time isn't being used. Most of the time they're parked. But that's a lot of cars out there. That's a lot of points that have to be managed on the grid. Right. So right. we're going to have to figure out how to do that. I wouldn't, you know, I don't want to sound down about vehicle to grid technology, but I think we have a lot of hurdles to overcome before that's going to be a piece of our, an active part of our grid. Have you, have you ever worked with, uh, it's called the Smart Electric Power Alliance? Yes, I know them. Okay, yeah, I, I recently had Erica on as a guest, and she was, we were kind of talking about this pretty in depth. For her, vehicle to grid is kind of microgrids for you. Um, and I, I completely agree that that is kind of an area where it's, it's really hard to figure out how this scales other than maybe on a residential level. Like if I personally have, I, I think like the only one is a Nissan Leaf, but let's say I have a Nissan Leaf, the power goes out, I can use that to power my house. But then if my neighbor or someone else wants to use it, that thing's going to be dead in an hour or two. Uh, what she was kind of mentioning that I thought was really uh, made a lot of sense was to kind of leverage bus systems uh, for these larger cities who have naturally just larger batteries and are looking to move to an electric fleet anyway. And then you can kind of have them in a central area. And I, yeah. I think to start, that's probably going to be the only way you can kind of do this at a large enough level to do the load balancing, like you mentioned, and just do it in just a consistent enough way for these smaller grids to stay active. Yeah. Now, fleets are obviously one of the first areas that you would always go to for any of these, just because large concentration in one place, one sophisticated owner, presumably, that you can deal with as opposed to trying to educate, you know, 100 homeowners. Um, right. So, no, I, I completely agree with that. Um, but again, we have to overcome the, all those little hurdles along the way. So with this change to microgrids, I mean, traditionally, uh, especially out here on the West Coast, you go for a drive and you'll just see the massive power lines that go on and on into the horizon. Where do you see this like change happening? Is this going to be through new lines put underground to kind of connect and fit these uh, cities together in smarter ways or how do you see or what, what, are, what trends are you seeing as kind of the first steps that are taking towards filling these gaps? Well, as you pointed out, a lot of this doesn't require a lot of restructuring of the grid. I mean, microgrids are pretty much, we're thinking about them largely at a distribution level. So existing distribution systems just with different relays, different switches, different you know, abilities to isolate and manage. And we're seeing some of that happening already um, from utilities. Then integrating in the um, distributed energy resources at the appropriate places so that you're able to power it. Those big transmission lines, I mean, I don't see them going away. I don't see yeah. us completely getting rid of central generation. But I think the growth is more likely to be more distributed generation, you know, more of these smaller resources greater ability to take, take advantage of renewables. Gotcha. And then do you, do you see, I mean, it, you mentioned there's a few pilots. Is this all mostly in kind of urban areas or are you seeing, you mentioned occasionally there's kind of like the island uh, example. I'm just, I'm just curious for like more rural living Americans. Is that still a bit too early to kind of find those gaps or are there any initiatives trying to figure out ways to kind of help people who might be more distributed? Um, I mean, all the examples I can think of are either campus type things, military bases, campuses, industrial sites, or urban areas, or remote villages where, you know, you have some group that is otherwise isolated from everything else. Right. Whether you would take, you know, half of Kansas and turn it into a microgrid, and I, and I, I completely I understand. I, I kind of figured that'd be the case. I'm just curious because uh, in some of the conversations we have around electric vehicles on the podcast and just similar topics, that has been a question that comes up is like, it does seem like a lot of these more rural uh, Americans and other people will just unfortunately be a little bit of the later to adopt just because of the ability to have it make sense for them. Uh, whether that's once again, it comes to the infrastructure of charging locations 
to vehicles that need to have larger ranges so they can go to cities and do these trips that they need to do in a day. Um, I was just curious if that was something that's been looked at and it, given what the focus is, it totally makes sense. And it makes sense to focus more like Costa Rica, I know is our, um, not because I'm sorry, not Costa Rica, Puerto Rico uh, is been kind of a pretty big ground for a lot of these tests, correct? Yeah, I think they've at least one set of plans for them, had them dividing up into basically eight microgrids um, that would then work together. But you have a lot of very rugged areas there, um, and it is an island, truly. Uh, so the whole whole system itself is, is islanded. Um, but I think that they're, you know, again, how you define a microgrid, what its boundaries are, would matter. Um, but... Yeah, I could see microgrids working in certain areas. I, I wouldn't just write off the rural areas, though. I, I mean, I think that they, first of all, we have rural electric co-ops, which we didn't right. even get into those before. But that's a whole, whole yeah. other set of electric type, electric utilities. Um, and they're very creative. They've been doing a lot of things with load management for decades before anybody else was. They've been out there with community solar projects. Um, so they're customer-owned. They're customer-driven. So I don't think you could just sort of paint all of the rural areas the same in the sense that we very well may see microgrids cropping up in areas where they make sense. Um, yeah. You know, if you have a concentration, maybe it's just a farm. Maybe it's one farm is its own microgrid. Maybe it's a small village. Maybe it is a community. I, you know, I think it'll matter just kind of where the configuration is, what the needs are of the community, what the threats are to the community and um, then how the whole economics play out. Gotcha. No, I, I think that makes sense. It's, it isn't a thing that's stopping it. It just is different variables to think of, and there's no, essentially, nothing technologically preventing it. No, and I think that's the thing about microgrids. It's hard to define um, sort of the tagline, things that people say. If you've seen one micro microgrid, you've seen one microgrid, because everyone is a little bit different particularly when you're building on a legacy system, you know, what already exists there, what wires already exist, what generation already exists, what are the community's needs? Um, and that may be a completely different equation than the next one down the road. I mean, uh, you've mentioned a few so far, but can you share um, what some of the leading charges are for microgrids? Like what, what's kind of making this push more popular than ever? You mentioned obviously a big part is stability uh, around uh, kind of climate events. Are, are there any other kind of things that you're seeing that's leading this charge that might be a little counterintuitive or just most people might not be aware of? Well, certainly for larger users, again, we're talking about, um, you know, for example, an industrial base or, or a military base is a perfect example. They need high levels of reliability. Um, because you're controlling your own sources, you might be getting higher power quality, which can matter a lot if you have highly sensitive electronic equipment. You think about what the loss is if you lose power. For a university, that might be the loss of experiments that they've spent years working on. Um, and so you need to protect that. You think about maybe a large financial institution who might lose the ability, you know, lose data, lose um, ability to trade financially in a certain period of time. You know, there, there could be big costs that they're, they're trying to um, preserve. There's also the ability to control your electric bill. Um, a lot of larger commercial or industrial customers are charged based on their demand. That is the amount of power they use at any point in time. And sometimes that's even ratcheted so that if you hit a certain demand level in one month, you still keep paying that for the next 12 months, even if you, you know, don't hit that level again. As homeowners, we think about how much electricity we use, which can still be important, but that demand charge can be very significant. So not just how much you use, but when do you use it? Do you use a whole bunch of it all at once? Right. Um, with a kind of time of use you know, for residential. Yeah, well, yes, you can do it time of use, but even there, we often don't bill based on the instantaneous use. We bill on the amount of power consumed over a period of time. Yeah. But that instantaneous use, you know, when you turn on everything in your house all at once, you pull a certain amount of power from the grid. And the grid has to be able to sustain, to, you know, to be able to meet that. So one of the uses of microgrids is to be able to help control those costs. If you can balance and manipulate your load, be able to shave your peak, your, your demand, your peak demand, 
you can actually save a substantial amount on your bill. And so one of the things that people cite as a reason for doing this is being able to control their costs, their electric bills. And there's also, I think, just a sort of sense of wanting to be in control, wanting to be um, self-reliant. And I think that has a certain appeal to, to some folks too. And with these, are you seeing um, this kind of being, I mean, it sounds like you're seeing all sorts of different pilots going on. Is it pretty common that these are around renewables and batteries or is it can be a diesel generator? Is, is, is it kind of a one-to-one or are you seeing renewables be a big part of this conversation? Um, I'm seeing a lot of people wanting renewables to be a big part of this conversation. Um, the reality is I think a lot of them are still diesel driven. Um, in fact, some of the you know, initial pilots proposals were for diesel and I think there's been a lot of concern. So um, yeah, we like to think it's part of the big you know, transition to renewables, um, but certainly in cases where they've been put into place for reliability reasons, um, you know, first of all, battery storage isn't going to last you two weeks. You know, it's going to get you through a few hours. Um, it's so if you're talking about a microgrid and you got to keep recharging those batteries, well, if you're in the middle of a storm, that might be, not be the time your solar facilities are doing their best. Um, so often it is a system that has some other kind of resource. It might have, for example, um, combined heat power which can be an advantage because you might be able to use the heat productively as well, um, as well as the electricity. And so you're making efficient use of a fossil fuel. We might be seeing more with fuel cells uh, going forward in the future. So I'd say it's still up in the air combinations. Um, certainly there are a lot right now that are really based around either diesel or combined heat power, um, but certainly an there's an opportunity there to be able to use renewables more effectively. Yeah, I think it, the trend just seems to be it's around that cost and what makes the most sense in that case is kind of the big driver. Would you say that's still kind of the case no matter? Yeah. Cost and need. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, right now, obviously, we've mentioned weather has been a big part of what's going on. The other part of this uh, going into 2020 and who knows how much longer is obviously COVID. How have you seen that kind of impact your conversations around energy and microgrids? I haven't seen a direct impact, but when you just think about what's happening, we are using electricity differently now. Um, you know, the reliability here in my home matters. Previously, I only had a wireless computer, and now I have one that's hardwired because I need to have reliability. Um, Similarly, this is all dependent on my electric system. So it's going to matter a lot more to me if I'm losing power in my neighborhood because trees are hitting wires than it did previously. I mean, yeah, you might lose a you know, refrigerator full of food, but now, I mean, there are people in my neighborhood that are, you know, working on very, very important things. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they need reliability. So I think that up down the road is going to be one of the impacts. I think we're going to see a lasting um, movement towards telework because I think people are finding there's some flexibilities here. There's a lot of savings and not going into the city every day, commuting, saving commuting costs. Um, but that's going to require some attention to the electric system. Kind of a shift from commercial load to more still in the residential, kind of just continuously instead of seeing those peaks in the morning and afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. A lot more people are home. <laughs> with, uh, with that, I mean, we, we've talked a lot about microgrids. We've kind of mentioned how that impacts other areas like EVs and renewables. I mean, outside of microgrids, what kind of technologies or anything that you're seeing on the horizon that you're really excited about? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think the whole area of storage is, you know, for many years, people couldn't say the word storage without saying the holy grail. Um, I think we still need to see improvements, uh, both in terms of the longevity, but also the supply chain. Uh, there have certainly been concerns about, you know, what are we doing with all these car batteries when they're used up? Secondary uses, maybe 
but at some point, you know, you end up with a lot of bat batteries that need to be recycled. Um, I know that we do have, um, oh, I forgot which division of the government is doing this, but I know there's a big recycling effort or thinking about recycling, researching recycling uh, underway, because that's going to be one of the things out on our horizon. Um, otherwise, in terms of technology, um, I think I'm really looking forward to us finding additional generation sources, whether it's geothermal, um, more efficient wind, ways to capture tidal uh, power. I think we're going to need more of these resources going forward. Um, so I, to me, that's, I can't really point to something I say I'm excited about this, but to me, those are the areas that I'm excited to see developments in. Kind of a combination of momentum around all these different technologies for what they can unlock in general. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we need new sources. Um, yeah. You know, climate change, I think is the perfect example of why we need to change what we are doing. We have wildfires burning across the West that are in part being caused by, you know, longer droughts, um, uh, higher temperatures, uh, stronger, strong winds, these storms that we're seeing, it's, it's really troubling. And kind of going off of how to tackle that issue and some of the challenges, I mean, given what you're exposed to and what you're working on and what you see, what are some like the innovative ways that industry or you think government can help accelerate the rollout of microgrids or renewables? Well, right now, one of the things I've been thinking about actually for several years is how we can facilitate changes in regulatory law that will facilitate microgrids. I mean, you think about it, government really kind of acts in two ways usually. One is either they are providing incentives. So for example, you know, you have a subsidy for an EV or you have a grant program for microgrids, um, tax breaks. Uh, actually, we do a lot of our energy policy through tax law. Um, so you have that sort of financial side of it and then you have the regulatory side. How do you define what a utility is? As we talked about earlier, does somebody who has a charging station, do they have to be regulated like a utility? Well, if you make, if you change the rules to make it clear, no, they don't, then it is much easier for charging stations to be put in places where people need them. Similarly, with respect to microgrids, I think we have to think about how much do we need to protect consumers versus where can we loosen up the rules so that more people can bring capital into this industry and create and innovate and provide services that people want. So I think government has a role in both of those. And industry as usual will keep pushing. Um, you know, they were, when I started in this industry, it was the industrials who were coming in and saying, we want more competitive power generation. We want the ability to move our power across systems. And industrials were a big player in that. With kind of uh, the regulation side of that, do you think part of that is due to just more education, more kind of pilots to kind of prove themselves to help accelerate those changes in regulation? Or is that kind of just the current momentum of those? There are several states that are already working on changing their regulations. Um, it depends. And this is one of the areas, what I'm, the course I'm teaching actually right now, I have students looking at different states and we, will, we see very different approaches. I think in every state there's room for microgrids, but in some states they will be utility owned, basically just part of the utility system. Other states that are already looking at more, are already in the midst of having more competitive models might be more willing to allow people to create microgrids that then sort of plug into the system as opposed to um, you know, being utility driven. So I don't think that there's any state that can't have microgrids, but I do think that how they decide to regulate them will determine what they have, who owns them, and who is being served by them. It really goes down to, you know, I think a lot of people think about regulation as protecting consumers Really, when we look back to the start of this industry, the idea of the regulatory compact under which we operate was industrial. Uh, it was the utilities that 
push this idea that give us a monopoly so that we can earn a rate of return and protect our investment and an exchange will allow regulation to assure that we don't abuse consumers. That was the Samuel Linsell's big um, you know, speech to the predecessor to EI. Um, it, was, it was an idea that was being pushed by industry. So I think now we, you know, we've been working under that model under a number of, for many years. And under it, we've made great strides. I mean, in the US, for the most part, we have universal service and it's mostly affordable. That's, there's a huge energy burden for some people and we are still working on that. Obviously it's not completely affordable, um, but it's relatively inexpensive given other you know, types of things that we need. Um, and so we can't lose that idea of accessibility and affordability and how different states will strike that balance between allowing innovation allowing different people to come in and provide uh, their capital, bring their capital to the market, create microgrids to serve consumer needs, and at the same time, make sure we're not leaving other people paying, you know, shifting costs to them unnecessarily um, or leaving them with higher burdens. We've got to figure that piece out and different states will take different approaches to that problem. Yeah, and it's definitely a pretty serious balancing act, trying to figure out how those work together and where to kind of draw the lines on certain parts of it. You know, uh, you've mentioned a couple of times, and obviously this is a big part of your background, is your teaching. Can you share a little bit more about what you're doing at George Washington University and some of the stuff that your students are working on currently? Yeah, well, to be clear, teaching isn't really primarily what I do. <laughs> Um, but because of the things I'm working on, there was an opportunity to get an appointment as an adjunct professor. And so I do teach, I've been teaching at least one course a year, um, sometimes little bits and pieces of other ones. And it's, they're all ones that are at this juxtaposition of the environment and energy and new technology. Um, we're really trying to see those projects come together. And then the other thing that I'm doing is I'm doing a lot of um, research projects in which we're trying to focus on a lot of interdisciplinary work. So I've got several projects going with other schools. One, we're looking at energy equity uh, for low-income um, uh, residents where we're trying to go out, we're using, um, we have a center for community engagement we're using their knowledge to help understand what the community might need and then think about what kinds of changes can we bring, whether it's regulatory, um, te technological, we have a smart grid lab over our engineering school. How do we bring these pieces together uh, to be able to solve some of these problems? I'm also working um, on another grant we've just started uh, where we're looking at wildfires in Alaska and the intersection of reliability, electricity, and health. Um, because again, all of these things come together. You need electricity for healthcare. Uh, if your electric system is causing wildfires, that's again, circling back to your uh, problems, both with reliability and with health. There's a lot of intersections here and we're really trying to get our hands around what the problem is and frame it in the first phase of our research. And then hopefully we'll move on to being able to uh, provide some solutions. Um, and as I said, we're also looking at disasters. How do you better prepare for them? So there's a lot of areas in which these so overlap. Um, we have many issues to deal with. And so my research is looking at those areas and then trying to bring them back to the classroom. And definitely, I, I, I think that's great. So I, I appreciate you sharing that with us. I, I think one area that's also really interesting is you kind of mentioned the component of like, how do you make this accessible to everyone? How do you make it easier for people to really take advantage and get cleaner air, get uh, more stability in their own healthcare through having a, a grid that's working? What, uh, what do you think are some of the areas that you've seen that really make that successful, like make it easier for people to see that equality in their energy providers and get better access around that? Well, one of the programs I've been very excited about, and I don't really view this as a, a technology because it's just a different application, but community, excuse me, community solar or shared solar. Um, so this is the idea where you have 
rather than everybody having solar on their rooftop, which again, doesn't work for a lot of people who are renters, who may not have adequate roofs, um, you know, who may not be planning on staying in the same place for very long, they may not have the ability to have rooftop solar. And even if you gave it to everybody for free, it still might not be able to meet a lot of the community's needs. Community solar is the idea that you can put the solar on any roof that works or any, any place that works. That doesn't have to be a roof. It could be a ground-mounted system. And then the credits from, you know, when the power is being generated from that project, it's going to the utility. The utility is creating billing credits. That is, rather than paying cash, it's creating credits. And you can allocate those to anybody who's on that utility system. Um, really love to highlight the work that um, there's a law firm, Nixon Peabody, here in DC. Well, they're in many places, but their DC branch um, actually started a, sub, a subsidiary. I think it's called New Community Solar Partners. Um, and what they did was they put solar on the rooftop of their office building downtown, and they're allocating the credits to a low income housing facility in a different part of DC. Building on that, and the whole, what they did was they were able to figure out how they could use the financing, um, certain grants, as well as selling their SRECs in order to be able to create the financing needed for the project. Using that financial model, they've now gone forth and they have created a solar project with a microgrid um, for another uh, low income community in DC where the microgrid is able to power a community room. So in the event of an outage, not every apartment's going to have power, but between the solar panels and the battery, battery backup system, there is this community room where residents will be able to come, charge their cell phones, keep their medications refrigerated, stay warm, stay cool, depending on, well, I don't think they can actually run air conditioning off of it, um, but get some basic services. So, I mean, I think that's a great example of being able to take this sort of combination of technology, law, finance, wrapping it all together and figuring out how do we reach out and make this accessible to people. The reality is if you're poor for the most part, you just think about how do I pay my bill? Um, but I think it's really important to be able to help people also understand that if they're getting their power from say coal-fired plants, that's having an impact on say the asthma of your child uh, the health impacts of, of the people around you and sort of helping to be able to make them part of the solution. Yeah, it definitely seems like community solar does offer a really easy way to kind of be flexible and kind of achieve these things versus maybe a larger project that, I mean, it sounds like there, it's a bit of both. You can do utility scale community solar projects, right, cool. but then you also have this flexibility like that law office where you can kind of do it in the city if you just have an unused rooftop space and really start kind of opening this up to a lot, a lot more people. So I, I think that's a, definitely a great thing to draw more attention to. Yeah, I mean, frankly, I'd love to see a lot more utility scale projects too. From a cost effectiveness perspective, it's probably much more cost effective to build a big utility scale project than it is to put solar on everybody's roofs. Um, but every little bit helps. So however, however it gets onto the grid is a good thing. Exactly. And yeah, and I, like I said, I, I think that is what's so cool about it is it lends itself well to both options. And I, I think the more people realize that it is and start asking utilities to really start kind of demanding it of them and getting it out there, the more you'll start seeing this because it is yeah. fairly easy permitting wise. You don't have to worry about that large of upkeep because there's no moving parts. It's, it's really just, you get the right people that are interested in doing it and a contractor and you can get things going pretty quickly. I, I, but it does require laws to enable it. So that <laughs> good, good call out, valid call out. Uh, but, and with that, I think I just want to say thank you so much uh, for joining us today, Donna. This has been super fascinating around microgrids and kind of how all these different entities kind of work for the system and leveraging technology to really find these opportunities to really streamline and make it better for everyone. Well, thank you, Chase. This has really been delightful and fun to learn more about what you're doing. Well, thank you. Looking forward to talking soon. Thanks for joining Thanks. us. Be sure to visit our website, connectingthegrid.com. There you can listen to our podcasts, contact us about sponsorship, or even be a guest on Grid Connections. 
While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a positive rating on your favorite podcast or video streaming service. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out a lot too. Thank you again, and I look forward to us learning more together soon.